Welcome to the Farmers Weekly Podcast, this episode recorded on Friday the 18th of December 2020. From the Farmers Weekly News Desk, I'm Johan Tasker. And I'm Hugh Broom. A no deal would be bad for UK farmers, but a lot worse for the Irish. If Irish agriculture was a country within the U27, it would have the second biggest tariff load of all countries. Have you thought about turning your farm into a film set? It can be anything from hundreds of pounds a day up to thousands. Farmers are the most trusted part of the food chain, a new survey shows. Farmers were the most trusted in the food supply chains of of all of the six countries. And it's been a bumper year for farm shops, but is it going to continue into Christmas? But there's been a real gear change into people thinking more about where their food comes from and wanting to find it locally. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. But first, and this might come as a surprise to some of our listeners, modern-day slavery is seen as a major problem in UK agriculture, with up to 13,000 people exploited annually in food and farming. Even the best farms can sometimes find that they've unknowingly employed workers who are being exploited by other people. Here's Derek Wilkinson, Managing Director of Sandfields Farms, which is part of the G's group of growers based just outside Stratford-on-Avon. There's various scales of modern-day slavery and exploitation, from simple paying someone a percentage of your wages for a job, and then you know, the other end of the scale there is they're getting physically abused or they have all their wages taken off them and just given a small amount to live off. Uh, and I think that's a common misconception about modern-day slavery. People jump to the conclusion it's about illegal workers, which is not. In most cases, it's people that are perfectly legal to work here, but they are generally vulnerable people. And that was the case here. So the six individuals we'd had in our business were all from Poland and they'd been recruited via a labour agency. We had done our own internal audit of them. And actually, there's no reason why we would pick up that these people were victims of modern day slavery because they'd all got uh, NI numbers, all got bank accounts. Uh, We inducted them, we made them aware of their rights and actually one of our questions on induction is about modern day slavery are you being exploited and the difficulty for us they're only with us for a very short time and it's very difficult in that short time to build a relationship with those people so that you can actually spot the signs they're not going to freely speak up because very often they're intimidated and actually threatened as was the case with one of the victims that had been come to us the gangs were picking them up in poland and promising them you know, a better life in the UK, come and work at it in the UK, we'll help, we'll find you a job and we'll provide you with accommodation and, and, and life's all going to be wonderful. And when they got to the UK, yes, they found them a job and they helped them set bank accounts up. But then they kept the gangs, in this case, were keeping control of those bank accounts. So they'd help the individual set the account up, but then wouldn't let them have the bank card. So on a Friday night when they got paid, the gang would go and empty their bank account out, each of the bank accounts out and then... Um, give the individual £20 to go and buy a bit of food and keep the rest themselves. Now, Mr Wilkinson said he was shocked by the incident, which happened in 2015, and he takes special care to look after his workers. We're actually proud of our systems. We've got very good ethical standards. We do a lot of auditing. Now we put all our management supervisory staff go through modern-day slavery training. We've got modern-day slavery champions within the business it can happen anywhere. The farmer who goes and employs two people for seasonal help 
you know, with harvest or milking cows or whatever, could still end up employing victims of modern day slavery quite easily. The gangs are very clever. Yeah, we thought we were very good in this area, and clearly, you know, there are people, even with our high standards, people still can get through. That's Derek Wilkinson of Sandfields Farms. The Modern Slavery Act requires companies with a turnover of more than £36 million to produce an annual statement setting out the steps taken to ensure that there's no slavery or human trafficking in their business or supply chains. Of course, most farms are under that threshold, but farmers employing staff or casual workers will have to demonstrate that they're abiding by modern slavery rules under plans for the Red Tractor Assurance Scheme due to be revealed next month. Here's Red Tractor Chief Executive Jim Mosley. Whilst farms typically are below the turnover threshold to have uh, their own report, inevitably that Modern Slavery Act and those bigger producers, the bigger integrators, processors, merchants, etc., will all have to demonstrate their efforts to address modern slavery. And so at some point, those demands are going to come down even to the smallest farms. Now, I think that Red Tractor can address some of those demands by getting a little ahead of the curve and develop and provide solutions that are shaped with farmers' input so that we can demonstrate our responsibility in this area. If we don't, then it would be our concern that some of the bigger departments, the the corporate social responsibility departments of those larger global companies, will actually come with their requirements and their approaches to agriculture, which will not be bespoke. And they might be very heavy and difficult to uh, to complete. And that's why we think that Red Tractor can get ahead of the curve here and develop something with industry that just shows our responsibility within this area. That's Jim Mosley from the Red Tractor. Modern slavery expert Andrew Phillips, a visiting fellow at Nottingham University Rights Lab, says it's sensible for farms of all sizes to take action. Certainly, both ethically and economically, because if they're found out, their reputation is um, at stake. The innovative thing about the Modern Slavery Act was that it asked large companies to investigate their supply chain. So it's not just about what's going on in your own organisation, within your supply chain. So larger companies are meant to be visiting and auditing their suppliers. So smaller family farms may well be visited as part of that and therefore should be taken seriously. So the idea of extending the remit of the Red Tractor Scheme to cover things like worker welfare and modern slavery is a good thing in your opinion? I think it is a good thing and I think it will help enhance the reputation of the Red Tractor Scheme. I think consumers would expect it nowadays. It's all part of the um, growing interest in traceability and provenance of food, isn't it? That's Andrew Phillips from the Rights Lab at Nottingham University. So, Johan, is this just more red tape that farmers are going to have to climb through to get their red tractor certification? I wouldn't necessarily say it's more red tape. If anything, it's it's trying to head off the likelihood of more red tape. Look, um, Red Tractor wants to make it easier for farmers to show that they are complying with the law and they are doing the right thing. And uh, as an industry, if we don't do that, we're going to have that imposed on us and it could be far far more onerous so it's good in a way that they're actually ahead of the game here ahead of the curve in terms of what's likely to happen or could happen uh, in terms of what we have to do as businesses 
That's exactly right. Uh, Jim Jim Mosley, the Red Tractor chief executive, was telling us that not only do, does Red Tractor want to comply with the law, it wants to meet and indeed surpass consumer expectations uh, of, of what they want from farmers and the food chain. So it is going the extra mile, but also there's a little bit, I don't really like the phrase, but there's probably a little bit of horizon scanning there, looking at what is coming down the line and, and, and making sure that we're ready for it before it arrives. And of course, there will be some people listening to this who are already in supply chains who are having to look at this sort of stuff anyway. Um, Some breaking news as we record this on Friday morning, some breaking news from Red Tractor HQ, Johan. Some breaking news indeed. Um, Christine Takon has been appointed chair of Assured Food Standards, and that's the company that operates the Red Tractor Assurance Scheme. And she is going to take up the role on the 1st of January, and she replaced this is Dame Lucy Neville Rolfe, whose uh, whose term ended uh, last month, and you might recall, Hugh, that. Um that Lucy Neville Rolfe, uh, she's a Tory peer, she sits in the House of, House of Lords, and she announced that she was going to stand down as a Red Tractor chair after opposing measures to protect British farmers against substandard food imports. And uh, that was that was a vote that uh, that she she made that uh, it obviously riled a lot of farmers and food producers. And you think the Christine take on appointment will be a welcome by by the industry? Do you know? I think it will be. She's got bags of experience um she she uh, was a director or she is a director of the af group uh, the anglia farmers uh, purchasing cooperative she's also um for more than 10 years she ran the cooperative group's farming business um which was at the time was the largest of its kind in the uk um she's been she has a cbe for services to agriculture it's not all about letters after your name of course um she, but she's also chair of the BBC Rural Affairs Committee. Um, so she's she's got her, um, to coin a phrase, a finger in a lot of pies, and let's hope that her red tractor assured pies. Um, she should do well. I think she'll be welcomed. And, of course, in the new year, we'll do a load more. We'll cover a load more on these new proposed standards. The consultation starts the first week of January, and it runs for two months uh, up towards the end of March. We will be reporting a lot more about what those standards are specifically and what they mean to you in whichever sector you are farming. Hi, I'm Lindsay Haddon, Marketing Manager for Massey Ferguson UK and Ireland. On the 21st of December, we will unveil an exciting new era in dairy and livestock tractors. Register now to be part of a unique online MF experience and join us as we launch a new series of straightforward and dependable tractors from Massey Ferguson. Go to masseyferguson.co.uk to register. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. The impact of a no-deal outcome to EU trade talks on UK agriculture, as we know, is potentially huge. By contrast, it could be said that the impact on Irish agriculture could be even greater. A no-deal would mean Ireland's farmers would be paying the second biggest tariff bill in the EU. Earlier, I spoke to Philem O'Neill, who is from the Irish Farmers Journal, and he told me just how big the impact for Ireland's farmers would be. 
It's actually massive in uh, a no-deal situation. Uh, Irish agriculture, like every other commodity that's traded between the EU and the UK, uh, would be subject to tariffs. Uh, and agriculture produce carries the highest level of tariffs of all. Uh, and uh, in the case of Ireland, uh, looking at the business that we have done in recent years, if, uh, Irish agriculture was a country within the EU27 it would have the second biggest tariff load of all countries, just behind Germany, actually. Uh, as things stand, when you take the whole economies into the situation, Ireland is about 5% of the EU27 trade with the UK, yet we would be paying 20% of the tariffs. And contrast that with Germany and the car industry, where they have 28% of all EU27 trade, and yet they would pay less tariff than Ireland, about 17% or 18%. So to sum up and put it briefly, it is a massive, massive issue for Ireland. And where's the biggest worry been in terms of the sectors? Presumably from a UK um, ag exports perspective, it's beef and dairy would be your most exposed, would they? Absolutely. Uh, and uh, in the context of beef, uh, almost half of all Irish uh, beef exports uh, go to Britain. And uh, in the case of dairy, it's a lower percentage. There's more of it globally traded. But uh, in the context of cheese and butter, uh, something like uh, 80% of our cheddar cheese exports would go to the UK. And similarly, on the other side, if you look at the imports, uh, you know, 80% of uh, UK beef imports come from Ireland. And I think some of the figures something similar on the cheddar front. So those are the two sectors in particular. And between them, in an Irish context, they would carry tariffs uh, if there was no deal in excess of a billion, about 1.1 billion euro. Uh, so that just uh, give it some idea of the size and scale why, uh, you know, Irish agriculture needs a deal probably more than any other sector of the EU economy. And in terms of the, the mood amongst uh, amongst producers in Ireland at the moment, presumably they're just sat holding their breath and there hasn't really been much movement forward in terms of investment or and they can't really plan for anything. It's like our producers here. No, and it's uh, the other thing is, of course, you know, it's a negotiation that takes place between the EU27 and the UK. So uh, the Irish input to that will be restricted through the normal EU channels. Um, the other thing that we're very conscious of on this side of the REC is the fact that even if there is a deal at this stage, it's going to be a very basic deal. We're going to have the issue, and I know it's an issue in the UK industry there as well, of veterinary certificate requirements and customs declarations after the 1st of January. And those are going to be in place, deal or no deal. And that's going to add a huge administrative burden uh, to the Irish industry. And it's going to bring the issue of inspections and, and access. Now, I know that's going to be phased in, but it's still a major issue and a cost to the industry. There's also concern here, and I'm sure this will be of concern to British farmers as well. You know, the UK are embarking on a series of trade negotiations. They're already started with Australia and New Zealand. And again, the government's, the UK government's own assessment of those is that they will have an impact on agriculture. So if they have an impact on UK agriculture, you can imagine that they will have an even greater impact uh, on Irish exports to the UK because we'll be competing head to head with those countries. And then finally, just looking forward in terms of we're obviously, from a UK perspective, we're coming out of the EU, you guys are still very much in there. Um, what's the feeling um, our farmers here are facing uh, potential some seriously big change when it comes to support payments and how the support mechanism is going to work going forward? Presumably there's some big changes on the horizon for European farmers and Irish farmers in terms of changes in support over the next few years. 
Uh, you're correct there as well, Hugh. You know, the, it's not uh, a case that the common agriculture policy for the next 10 years is going to be the same as it was for the last 10. There's a huge drive and a new strategy, a farm-to-fork uh, strategy, which will be agriculture's contribution to the EU's ambition to be the world's first carbon-neutral continent by 2050. Uh, that is very much environmentally focused. It has the ambition of reducing uh, fertilizer use uh, by 20%, pesticide use by 50%. It wants to drive 20% of land into organic farming. So all of those are quite radical changes. And uh, I know the UK is heading towards a much more pro-environmental uh, policy or environmental support schemes. Uh, I think there's a degree of commonality there, ironically, as both sides diverge in terms of future farm policy as well. Hugh, um, some big changes for Irish farmers as well as UK farmers? Even if there is a deal, there is still going to be some friction to trade and that's still unknown as to how much friction there will be. And we, we've talked about this before, expert certif- certification, uh, all that sort of stuff that's got to go on to products now that we're effectively or soon to become a third country status nation after the 31st of January, regardless of how the talks turn out. I should also point out that as we record this... The talks are still ongoing. What's interesting is yesterday, talking to some people in Ireland, there was quite a lot of, and there was a little sniff of this in the UK on Wednesday night as well. Yesterday, there was a bit of a a sort of a glimmer of optimism that a deal had been done and it was all going to be rolled out uh, on Friday, today. Um, they were billing it potentially as the uh, the next Good Friday agreement, as it were, a good agreement on a Friday. Um, but it doesn't look like it. Looking at what the UK government was saying last night, there are still big differences between the two sides in these negotiations. So it really is going to go up to the up to the wire, uh, whether that's before Christmas or not. Who knows? But either way. It's hugely impactful on, on, as we know, for UK agriculture, but equally for Irish agriculture. And I think interesting as well, though, that they potentially would share our pain if cheap food imports were allowed to flood into the UK market because it would effectively exclude them from the market as well as our own home-produced products. And if there is a deal, even if there is a deal, there is going to be friction. With friction comes costs, and with costs comes an impact on farmers' bottom bottom line. But the main sector there is obviously the beef sector, without a doubt. I mean, half, over half of all Ireland's beef exports come into the UK. Uh, it makes up a huge proportion of what we consume here. We're about 74% self-sufficient in beef, bearing in mind we have historically exported quite a bit of beef for processing as well. And look, some in the beef industry would welcome the fact that beef a bit of friction uh, to Irish beef coming into the UK because it would help to stabilise the UK market. Uh, but then equally, it sort of makes up the mix. So uh, it, it's it's look, it's going to be really challenging either way. And, and and again, it's just the big unknowns. The other thing as well, I think, is the final point. And it again, it comes back to these negotiations. It comes back to this whole question about equivalence that we've talked about right the way through. All the time we've been effectively bashing this uh, subject of, of, of the negotiation and the deal to death. Uh, but the equivalence, and you heard him talking there about the proposals for the CAP, 20% organic farmers but, uh, within the new CAP regime, You know, a 50% cut in pesticides. Now, you have to ask yourself... They're struggling over these negotiations at the moment to work out the ratchet mechanism for making sure that both sides are effectively farming on the same playing field to the same rules. You know, that is just if you're suddenly dealing with a a big economic neighbour who's cut their pesticide use by 50 percent and 20 percent of their farmers are organic. Where does that leave UK farmers? 
where indeed, and that highlights very much the challenges that they face you. It does indeed highlight the challenges of how you make this deal work and how you make it fair for both sides as and when the standards evolve and change. It is not easy. I hope if you are listening to this and it is not Friday, or even if it is Friday and it comes as a surprise that a deal has been struck, we have said all along, being the eternal optimists that we are, that a deal will be done. We hope it is done, given that the talks have carried on past the deadline time and time again. Let's hope we get a deal for Christmas. I'm John Sellers from Corteva AgriScience. All seed rate growers who need to get on top of blackgrass have until the 31st of January to apply AstroCurb or CurbFlow 500. If rain is not forecast, soil temperatures in December and January are generally ideal and the crop canopy will not hinder grass weed control. Find out more at corteva.co.uk. The Farmer's Weekly Podcast. This is the Farmer's Weekly Podcast. Thank you for listening. It's good to have you with us. A special shout out to Farmer Steve, who left us a review on Apple Podcasts. He says, it's a fantastic show. I always listen to it in the parlour. It makes Friday night milking fly by. I hope your cows uh, are enjoying it as well, Steve, and uh, behaving themselves whilst they come into the parlour. Um, this is the bit where we have a little bit of a talk, but hey, just thank you for your listening for the last, uh, what, eight, nine months, is it, Johan? Uh, if you've been listening to every podcast, then thank you very much. Uh, we have seen the numbers go up, up, up all the time, and there's lots of you out there. Um, it, now is the time to wish you a very happy Christmas and, and have a restful uh, a restful holiday, and hopefully it'll be a better new year. And uh, yeah, I'm after this episode we will be back in the new year i think the 8th of january will be the next podcast after this one but uh yeah happy christmas and uh, and all the best for the new year hugh onto the markets thank you johan as you'd expect some of the livestock values just edge back now they're right on top of christmas uh cattle dead weight average this week 367.8 that's back from 372.5 p from last week uh steer live weight average is back about seven or eight p to 206 a kilo this week on to sheep uh the sqq deadweight average 482 that is actually up about 3p on the week the live weight sheep average is back a penny 215.4 arable markets feed wheat up Two quid, £186.20 a tonne. Milling wheat goes up about a pound, £203.90. Feed barley, back a pound, £140.50. All seed rape goes up three quid to £358.20p. And that was your last look of the markets in 2020 on the Farmers Weekly podcast. Now, have you ever thought about turning your farm into a film location? It's something we all like the idea of. The money for effectively doing very little. Someone who's been looking at that is Andrew Meredith, is currently Farmers Weekly's deputy business editor. And we are going to talk to him about why you might turn your farm into a film location. I said that he's deputy business editor currently. If you read the leader section of the Farmers Weekly this week, you will see, though, that congratulations are in order because Andrew has been appointed the new Farmers Weekly editor. Congratulations, Andrew. Thank you very much, Hugh. And so you're effectively editor-designate now. You must feel of quite aligned to Joe Biden in a way. It's probably the one thing we have in common. Yes, we're both, we're both taking on a very big job early next year. 
And and it, and is there some sort of uh, anointing with oil ceremony that happens at some point next year <laughs> from the sort of Farmers Weekly vault? I can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> that the vial of oil that was created in 1934 is still in existence. <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I can just uh, visualise it now. But seriously, you congratulations. You Your role starts now, presumably, does it? Or, did, or do you wait till you sort of start later in the new year? So as of 1st of January, I'll be overlapping for three months with the current editor, Carl. He's going to... Uh, in, take me along to lots of meetings show me a lot of spreadsheets show me uh, show me the ropes and then he's off as many readers would already know to for his retirement then uh, in late spring he'll be off uh, in early april and a uh, well deserved and well done carl um so lots for you to get stuck into but in the meantime you are still deputy business editor as well uh, and you've uh, done a story this week around film location. So why should I turn my farm into a film location? We all know that many farmers live in fantastic areas of outstanding natural beauty, whether that's the official or the unofficial designation. They've got wonderful views. They've got interesting old farm buildings. They've got tiny little cottages or great big manor houses. They live in some of the most interesting parts of the UK. And some farmers have been able to take the assets that they have of their land or their their farmyards and really milk them for all that they're worth by inviting film cameras and actors and all of the associated paraphernalia with making TV and film onto their land to make some of the great period dramas or rural dramas or factual programmes uh, you name it, every film needs a location and so much of the great British countryside at some point is turned over to it. How do you differentiate? Because presumably lots of people are trying to get their sell their location. So how would I differentiate what I've got to offer? Well, I think the first important step is uh, from speaking to the experts, you really need to get a photographer out to your location, take some really good high quality pictures and get on the books of one of these uh, film scouting agencies, which all of the directors Directors are looking at all of the time to find the, the perfect the perfect scene for the movie that's in production. But the important thing uh, that Jamie and Anna Rankin told me when I spoke to them uh, on their farm in Hertfordshire was to have a real diversity of, of choice as well. If you're lucky enough to have two or three types of uh, farm building, perhaps from different eras as your farm has grown over the decades, or uh, a farmhouse as well as a, yeah, perhaps a, an old bit of woodland or maybe you can bring along the animals if you if you can make yourself so much more attractive to a potential filmmaker by enabling them to do more of that film creation in one location it saves them money and it makes you cash and what can you expect to earn a day then if you if you let them have a field or your farmyard it can be anything from hundreds of pounds a day up to what uh, up to thousands you know four thousand pounds a day or more if crews uh, there and perhaps they've gone overtime. Often there's really strict time clauses built into contracts. So if if crews overrun by you know hours or days, those 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 numbers really start to tick up then, and, and that can and that can really make a difference. We got one of the world's best uh, film production industries right on our doorstep. I'll let you into a secret. When we had an advert here once, uh, it was an ASDA advert actually, um, and uh, they needed a tractor ploughing in a field, 
and the farmer, the actor that was dressed in the barber jacket, uh, managed to keep stalling the tractor. So yours truly <laughs> had to step into the breach. Uh, back in 2000, there was an Asda, it was an epic Asda advert, if I may say so. And I, I, mere me, was ploughing the tractor <laughs> with the tractor. And at one stage, I was moving boxes in one of the other shots as well. Andrew Meredith, Deputy Business Editor at Farmers Weekly, thank you very much for that. Have a wonderful Christmas whilst you con- contemplate your anointing of the oils in the new year and uh, and congratulations on your new appointment thank you Hugh happy Christmas to you and Merry Christmas to all the listeners as well the Farmers Weekly Podcast Farmers have the highest trust rating in the food supply chain. That's according to a study of consumers across six countries, including the UK. The study was carried out, supervised by Richard Bennett, who's a professor of agricultural economics at Reading University. I spoke to him earlier and started by asking how they carried out the survey. Well, we did our survey uh, online and it was actually across uh, six different countries with 2,200 respondents. Uh, So in the UK, we had um, 369 consumers. And uh, we've had some very interesting results in terms of their attitudes to trust in the food supply chain. And Richard, what questions did you ask these consumers? It was asking them specifically about trust. Our project is all about uh, consumer trust and trying to increase consumer trust in the, in the food supply chain and in food companies of one sort and another. So we were asking them directly about how much they have trust in the food that they eat and in the different actors along the food supply chain. So we're asking them some very direct uh, questions. And the panel of consumers that we had were all interested in sort of food issues. They were recruited through um, a recruitment company. Uh, and so they wanted to take part in our, in our survey. So what were the main findings of the survey, Richard? It certainly varied um, across country. Um, although in every country, it's really interesting, farmers were the most trusted in the food supply chains of, of all of the six countries. Uh, an enormous variety in countries as well, varying from the UK to countries such as such as Israel and Finland, for example. So in, in the UK, um, consumers scored uh, their level of trust on a scale from one to seven. So seven is, is most trusted. Four would be a sort of neutral score. Um, so, a, 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 you know, neither trust nor distrust. And farmers came out at 5.15. So that's it's quite a long way away from four and more towards seven. Uh, and that's in contrast to retailers who scored 4.6. Restaurants and caterers just under 4.5. The same for food manufacturers. And quite surprisingly in our survey, we found that food authorities of one sort and another were the least trusted. And that actually surprised us. But But farmers, the most trusted across all six countries. And is this a one-off survey or has it been conducted before? We've done it uh, for this particular project for this year, but on another project called the Trust Tracker, similar work has been done and indeed we used the same questions for some of these trust um, responses because we wanted to compare and have some consistency over time. And indeed, in that survey, um, you know, last year, 
they also found that farmers were the most trusted in the food supply chain. So you couldn't argue that the trust rating was the impact of the coronavirus crisis and consumers being sat at home feeling vulnerable? No, although we did specifically ask uh, how their trust has changed in the different food actors since COVID. And really interestingly, the trust in farmers, it was high before COVID, even higher after COVID. It increased uh, due to COVID. Uh, Consumers see farmers as um, very hardworking, trustworthy, honest um, people who are battling, if you like, against the elements and against pests and diseases to put food uh, on the on the consumer's table. So after COVID, uh, trust in farmers has increased even more than it was before. And also actually trust in food retailers increased slightly as well. I think because, well, consumers told us because Uh, retailers manage to keep putting food on the shelves. Of course, they can only put it on the shelves if farmers are producing it. Kept putting um, food on the shelves despite the problems, the logistical problems and so on of, of COVID. That's Professor Richard Bennett, who is a Professor of Agricultural Economics at the University of Reading and was behind the survey, which you just heard about. Hugh, some really good public approval ratings for farmers there, and they echo findings that we have uh, uncovered at Farmers Weekly in the past, that people really do uh, trust the people that produce their food. Not so good, though, for for government agencies. Um, Can you explain that to me a bit more? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Obviously, the farmers top the chart in terms of trust in the whole food supply chain. The retailers uh, were sort of somewhere in the middle. Uh, And then actually, the retailers have built trust, as you heard there, post-COVID for keeping the food on the shelves. But food authorities, so that's anyone from, uh, you know, anyone from government departments like DEFRA, uh, Food Standards Agency, those food authorities, for whatever reason, consumers don't seem to trust them. They have the least trust rating in the whole of the food supply chain, according to the the people in the six countries that they spoke to. And I think the interesting thing about it as well is that this is quite a diverse study. It's not just the UK or England or Wales or Scotland. It is across six countries. So you could argue it's got quite a big, well, it has, it's got a big perspective in terms of consumers' views of, 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 of the supply chain. The Farmer's Weekly Podcast. And finally, a story with plenty of Christmas cheer. And look, we've even got a jingly, tingly bit running underneath. You thought you'd escape that for the rest of the podcast, hadn't you? But you haven't. Now, it's been a bumper year for farm shops because of the coronavirus crisis. It's been up and down, but trade has been good. And according to a survey by NFU Mutual of their customers, 40% more of them will be spending in farm shops this Christmas than last David Exwood runs Westlands Farm Shop near Horsham in Sussex. Lockdown was a real game changer in terms of food and food supply and local food. We saw an enormous sort of leap in our uh, business in mid-March and then that carried on right through the year, really. It's been up and down as we've gone in and out of lockdown. But there's been a real gear change into people thinking more about where their food comes from and wanting to find it locally. Rob Copley has a farm shop near Pontefract in West Yorkshire and is chair of the Farm Retail Association. The turnout of people and the amount they are buying in the shop has really, really gone up. It's people are really supporting local. And also cooking more at home, so they're buying a lot more. It's definitely gone back to basics. If I look at my shop, my butchery sales have doubled. 
The bakery sales, which is pies and cakes, that's more than doubled. We sell it an awful lot of flour, an awful lot of veg. But then if you go to what I call the luxury side, the sort of the wines, the gins, the gifts and the ice cream, that's actually dropped a bit. His Christmas sales are looking to be some of the best ever. We've got double the orders we would have, well, for the last five years. The orders are a little bit smaller, as you would expect, because people are in smaller bubbles. £12, the sort of smallest turkeys that we do, they've increased unbelievable. We've sold a lot less of the big turkeys. We are definitely going to do more this Christmas than we've done for the last five years. They are going crazy for the desserts. We do quite a few sort of cheesecakes to take home and pavlovas and roulades. People are seeing Christmas as a necessary luxury this year. They've not had the best of years. They've not been able to go out, so they're blowing the budget at Christmas. According to David Exwood in Sussex, 2020 has been the start of a trend, and this creates a huge opportunity in local food as we head into the new year. There's been a change in our society, and anybody who's involved in local food should grab that opportunity, make the most of it, Get out there and deliver what people want. People want to buy local. Everybody should get out there and do it as much as they can and grab as much of that market as they can to lock it in for as long as possible. It's a great opportunity. Everybody should take it. So, Johan, are you heading to uh, the local farm shop to top up your Christmas shopping? We always, I think like a lot of people, we always make sure we visit our local farm shop in the run-up to Christmas. And it's nice, isn't it? A special time of year to make a special effort to, to make sure that we um, that we take a little bit more care than usual to put something good on our plates. I know just from what we do, we grow a small bit of asparagus on the farm here and we sell all of that to two local farm shops. And the trade this year was just absolutely phenomenal in terms of people engaging locally, back with their local farm shops and and, and engaging with that local food supply chain. Yeah, it has been the story of the year, really, hasn't it? Local food, especially in relation to to farming. People are spending uh, more time at home. They're cooking cooking from scratch more and uh, and really appreciating um, the people that uh, produce that food too. It is, and because the challenge into next year will be hanging on to those local consumers as we hope things get back to normal. You heard Rob Copley in the piece there. He's got the Farmer Copley's. Uh, it's a massive farm shop enterprise just outside of Pontefract. It's quite impressive. Now, phone systems. You know when you phone somewhere up, Johan, and it says, press one for so-and-so, okay? Phone systems are absolutely the vein of my life. I hate the damn things. But I have to say, if you want some entertainment, look up Farmer Copley's farm shop on the interweb and uh, phone the front of house number because R- uh, Rob has done what I think is one of the best uh, phone system option menus you'll ever hear. It's really entertaining. It's worth a listen. That is the Farmer's Weekly Podcast for 2020, isn't it, Johan? That is indeed. I think that's what they call a wrap. Uh, Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have a fantastic new year. At this stage, we haven't got a Scooby what's going to be in the next show because it's not until, is it January the 8th, Johan? Yep, the 8th of January is the next podcast. Uh, We'll be bringing you news of the Oxford Farming Conference. We've got three ministers there, one from Scotland, one from Wales, one from England. It sounds like a joke, but I can assure you it isn't. And we will also be looking at the Oxford Real Farming Conference. And we may, believe it or not, have news of a Brexit deal. (laughs) I hope there 
listening to a deal. We've been talking about it for so long. Uh, we will leave you with the thought that hopefully there will be a deal and you never know. Uh, as we start next year, the world will have even got more weird or perhaps we may see the green shoots of some normality returning. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas and a great break and a great new year and we will see you in January. We'll see you in January indeed. Thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.